What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Welcome, everyone, to So Very Wrong About Games. I'm your co-host who does not have the stomach flu, Mark Bigney, and with me, as always, is my partner, my co-host who does not have a stomach flu, Michael Walker. How are you doing, Walker? Always good, Mark. That is, as you might have expected, two out of two hosts not currently suffering from some serious form of infectious-based gastrointestinal distress. Or some weird lovesickness bullcrap. So this has been your sharing hour It's So Very Wrong About Games. This is a podcast about board games, and we've decided to mix things up this week. We're going to talk about the games we played last week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. We're going to talk about our feature game, which this week is Concordia Venus. And we're going to talk about our topic, which is spending money on the hobby. Are you getting your money's worth? Well, I can definitely say that I'm getting my money's worth out of Walker. It's worth every penny. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a cheap thrill, I but tell you. on that topic, before we get to our as-yet-unnamed retrospective intro segment, the Eurus you have some big plans this weekend that perhaps our oh, viewers yes. might be interested in. We already about. talked about it. There's a big convention in here in Toronto, Ontario called Breakout. It's like the fourth or fifth year, whichever it is, doesn't really matter. It's coming up this weekend, which is pause for effect. Uh, the 15th, 16th, and 17th in Toronto downtown. So if you're there, come by and hopefully we can play a game or just to say hello. I'm more than happy to talk to anyone. I don't know what you would possibly want to talk to me about. But I'll be there with uh, McFadden Tables. That's another local business here in Kingston. And uh, come on by. So with that in mind, let's talk about our Aurus. What we reviewed last year was... Now, I would I would normally say Shadespire, but my terrible prophecy has come to light. I said that someday they're going to release another set, and you said, oh yeah, it's still going to be called Shadespire. They're going to replace the first part. And I said, no, I think they're going to stick with the Warhammer Underworlds nonsense. Uh, so we can't call it Shadespire anymore. We have to call it Warhammer Underworlds because now it's Night Vault. This is the current name of, of, of the sequence. What, what do you have to say about Warhammer which is, Underworlds? Which is funny because when I when I had asked you, is it Shadespire? And I looked up on the shelf and my Night Vault is still in the shrink wrap. Yeah. So I, I don't know what that what tells us. We did, we have sort of veered away from it, but this is partially my fault as well. Because just, just the time restraints have been huge, and it is a two-player game, and the, the field is huge. I will say the following. In the field of two-player games, it hasn't slipped appreciably. It's just that we don't play... We haven't played two-player games all year. Exactly. Once we played Battle Lore, that's about it. <laughs> yeah, no, that's for sure. Like, it, it, like I, I'm not going to... 
repeat exactly what you just said in the field of two-player games. It has not slipped in ranking for me. It is up there. It has everything that I'd want out of a two-player game. It's quick. It's easy. It's customizable. It's, it's, you get out of it what you put into it. You can even go as far as painting it, you know, going through all the decks. You don't need to buy, you don't need to buy more than the, the base box even. And if you wanted to buy more, then you can buy more. It, it's a great little game and I would suggest at least trying it. Actually, to be fair, I think we exaggerated a little bit. I've, I've definitely played lots of Warhammer Underworld since we reviewed it as our feature game. It's just, I haven't played it either since Night Vault came out, the new set. There are now, as a result, six warbands that I haven't even tried, some of whom look very, very interesting. In terms of how accessible it is, I think that part of its strength is, is proving to be part of its weakness. Every time a new card set comes out, you know, I buy I buy the set, I look at the new cards, a lot of the cards look really interesting, and they're really playing around with what the card effects could do. You and I were not optimistic about the universe of available card effects, but I think that they've really shown that there's a lot of gas left in the tank. I wish I had more opportunities to play it. One of the people locally who played it a lot moved out of town. That certainly influenced things. Uh, I think it's held up great as a system. It's just, as you say, in the universe where it is situated, we don't really play games like that. Recently, I hope that changes going forward, or if I find, find new partners, we'll see. Uh, but yeah, I still recommend Warhammer Underworlds, especially if you're interested in two-player skirmishy type stuff. And there you have it. Even though hate just came out. And let's just segue right into games we played this week. I played hate this week, Mark. Did you play hate this I know, week, Walker? I know. Surprising. I know. You probably didn't see that coming. Yeah, our, like we talked about last week, our big shipment, no, it was not last week, during what we talked about in our special episode was that our, we got some shipments in, one of which was Hate by Simon Games, a game uh, based on the art of Adrian Smith, and uh, there, we just sort of, you know, put this, you know, whipped out a scenario, sort of worked our way through it, and uh, I, I like it so far. It's nice and quick. I find it a little fiddly because you have to mark every figure that's activated. And I think going forward, maybe we'll start marking the cards. And maybe it even says that in the book. I'm not sure. But it just seems to be odd, you know, figuring out which ones have activated and putting the markers out and also paying the cost for activating them. And it seems almost that it has this neat activation system where you get this, you know, currency that you use to activate the guys. And every time you attack, you have a chance of getting more. What's the currency called again? That's a great question. <laughs> Isn't it called rage? No, it's there's hate. I don't think it is rage. Okay, there's hate, rage, resentment, a neurosis, vague discomfort, mild embarrassment, sexual tension, and which in, of those resources? The, yeah, it's, it's okay, all, maybe all maybe some of these I made up. Okay, anyway, there's a currency that you used to activate your guys. And it, it seems though, you know, you might be limited, but seem, seeing as you attack and defend so much in hate, you seem to be generating an awful lot of it because not only is it on a die face, but there's also a a, uh, a choose your own, like a wild die face as well. And if you don't need it, then you're going to take more of this resource so you can activate more guys. So it didn't seem as though it's something that you're going to run out of. Oh, that's too bad. But maybe that will change up once you get more abilities because you have this giant sheet of all these buildings and they give you bonuses during combat and you have to spend that same currency to activate those as well. And when you start out, you only get one and maybe you'll, you know, once you start being able to activate more, maybe we'll run out that way. So let's wait and see. I'm definitely going to play it more. Looking forward to trying it again. And that is hate. Yeah, I'm looking forward to giving it a shot. When Walker was saying we tried it, he meant uh, he and his other friends. Uh, immediately after saying that he doesn't get to play two-player games anymore, he then immediately launches into talking about how he played hate with someone who wasn't me, which, you know, naturally. 
I looked it up. It's sexual tension. That's the current scene. Is it? You spend sexual tension and you, you, you generate it. And then in the third season, you try to introduce a new sub-character to generate more and it backfires and the viewers revolt. It's a whole thing. I, I can see it coming. For yeah. sure. So that's Hate, the game of network broadcasting. Uh, I got to play a lovely little dexterity game that everyone in the world except for me and a couple of other people seem to hate. It's called Climb. And because we've gone almost 10 minutes into an episode without using any French, this was designed by Benoit Michaud and published by Le Scorpion Maxcape. I have uh, fond memories of the original French version, which is something that I shout in a guttural voice at every opportunity when playing the game, which is Climb! So uh, in a game of Climb, what you're actually doing is you're building a little climbing course uh, for your fingers. And every hole in a card, it's just these square cards with holes in them of different sizes and shapes and different colors, and each color corresponds to a finger. So it's kind of like Twister for your hand, generating a little less sexual tension than, a, than, a, than an average game of hate. And what was originally uh, fascinating about it was I, I thought that people with larger hands like myself, uh, given that I weigh approximately 700 pounds, uh, would have an advantage. But no, because people with larger hands tend to have fatter hands, and that's definitely true of me. And so I played it with small people with small slender hands, and I played it with big sausage fingers. It, t- it tends to self-balance. Anyway, it takes about five minutes to play, maybe, and I quite like it as a little dexterity filler, and it's a dexterity skill that's not often tested in dexterity games. A lot of people seem to find it very obnoxious, though. I think because their frustration threshold is relatively low, and it is easy to mess up in your in your early uh, climbs. It's, it's just, I just like it fun to contort my hand to try to get those things, and it's cheap and cheerful, and it's easy to throw into a bag. I always have good experiences with it, and that it's gripe! Or- so, so the game is remembering which finger, finger to put into what color? Is that what how you can make a mistake or what what are they getting you'd be what, are, what so, are they getting frustrated with uh typically what happens what ends a run as it were is by moving a card is by because you have to touch the table only and if your part of your digit brushes up against the card and dislodges it that means you're done and you pocket whatever points you've scored thus far Honestly, you would think that it would be very, very hard. And I I had the same misgivings, too. I thought that it would be very hard to remember the color uh, correspondence of the different fingers. Uh, But there's a reference card that just sits on the table, and it's amazing how simple that part is. Nobody – it's a very deliberative game, Climb is. You don't – you know, it's not not about speed. You don't want to go too quickly. So it only takes half a second to be like, okay, that, that hole is my middle finger. All right, and then my ring finger goes over here. Look, I quite like it. It's it's an enjoyable game. That's climb. But as I say, if you have a low th- uh, low frustration threshold, then it might not necessarily be for you. All right, we got to try Siege of the Citadel, another giant Kickstarter that just came in this week. Another second edition, another uh, miniature bucket of plastic, and I felt as though it played very much like the old old game. Not very much new, which is fine because I enjoyed the old game. This seems a little bit more streamlined, a little bit more options when it comes to equipment and characters to play. The, you know, the boards were a little more, you know, generic so you can, uh, you know, switch things in and out. And overall, I think it would just played better. I was shocked at what a throwback it was. It really feels exactly like the game that was released over 20 years ago. And I don't mean that as a compliment. Well, yeah, it doesn't mean you can take that as good or bad, mostly bad. I'll just say this, because we're going we're gonna to play some more, probably mess around a little bit with the game, campaign system. In some ways, Siege of the Citadel, the original one, Mutant Chronicle Siege of the Citadel, was light years ahead of its time. Because it presages the sort of everything's got to have a campaign, everything's got to have a relatively straightforward uh, XP-based leveling system that games have been doing for the past five years. That's definitely one of the huge trends, and it, it, it predated that by a significant margin. The other way in which it is very much a product of its time, though, is there's going to be a bad guy player who spends 
a lot of their time just messing around with units that don't matter. Moving units that are never going to get into a relevant position, doing attacks that don't have a snowball's chance of succeeding, doing a whole bunch of stuff and busy work that doesn't matter. And that is something that a lot of mo- more modern dungeon crawls don't do anymore. And so that is an interesting feature. Now, maybe this is just an artifact of the first scenario. Maybe things get more interesting as people level up. Who knows? But mostly as people level up, it's just throwing more dice of different and colors. It does also fall in the trope where it's sometimes it's better off for the bad guy to disregard the mission and any theme and just concentrate on killing someone because it gets you more XP, which actually transfers back to your own Doom Trooper pair on the next mission where you don't have to play the bad guys. You play, you know, your little pair and because you use the same XP. So sometimes you're going to be taking shots and doing things that just don't make sense in order just to get more XP. But what's such is the way of Mutant Chronicles. Probably more to say later. So I played another game of Good Critters. Now, Good Critters left a, uh, gave me a relatively bad first impression. This is a sort of, uh, I, would, I would put it in the same rough wheelhouse as Cash and Guns or games of that ilk. And indeed, the theme is exactly the same as Cash and Guns. You're a whole bunch of gangsters after, after a robbery and you're divvying up loot. But Good Critters is really, really, really good if you internalize a couple of requirements. One of them is, is that you have to be unfair. If you have the sort of impulse approaching a game of good cutters of trying to make sure that everyone plays nice and you try to ensure a roughly equal distribution of loot, the game is going to be boring. It's going to be a drag. Things are going to blimp along. Someone may win. The game will function, but it's going to be dreadfully boring. What you have to do, and I encourage you, anyone who gets the game and wants to really set the, set the appropriate tone for a game of good cutters, you have to decide right away that a couple people at the table, you don't like them for some reason, and you're just going to freeze them out, or at least you're going to try to, because much of the game is about in-group and out-group psychology and trying to make sure that the people that you like are doing well, of course not as well as you, you are, and just generating conflict, because that is when Good Critter shines, when there's actual animus, when there's an ability to do that. Now, unlike, I, I compare it to a lot of other games, like, so there's Doors of the Lesser Houses, which we've talked about on the show, which is very, very good at building in animus from the get-go. There is no way to play nice in Door of the Lesser Houses, and that's one of the reasons why we we love it. There are other games where you can try to play nice or not, depending on how things go. You know, your traditional diplomacy games, whether it's Senji or Cosmic Encounter or lots of other negotiation games like that. And then there are games where you really have to play nice and trying to play play nasty doesn't help you, like Citadel Confluence. But Good Critters is one of those games where it looks like you can make a go of it trying to make sure everyone's your friend, but that is a mistake. And it's unfortunate because it's a it's a very fun, light, accessible game, but it's a strange kind of fragility in that kind of design space. And that's just something I wanted to flag. And you really have to make sure that whoever is the first boss really is able to set the tone and really help make sure that the game moves along that 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 way because that, that will make sure that everyone's engaged and everyone's having a good time. The other salient problem of Good Critters is if you have a boss who's very, very clever and dominant, they can stay boss for much of the game. That is also a pro- potential problem sometimes. And you, as the experienced player at the table, need to find a way to get things moving. Often, again, through arbitrary animus. Like, just decide you don't like the boss, even if the boss is helping you win. You have to decide you don't like them and you need to stage a coup. With those two caveats in mind, I really do think that Good Critters is probably one of the best in its class. I, I much prefer it to Cash and Guns. It's a lot cleaner in a lot of ways and in, 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 it encourages more engagement. Cash and Guns is clever, but much of it is about avoiding playing the game, you know, ducking down so you don't get shot or getting shot so much you don't, your options narrow or things like that. And that's fine. But in a small box, it packs a lot of punch. It scales well in good player counts. And it's it's raucous fun with the right mindset, which is not difficult to, to conjure up, but you have to keep that in mind. So that's good critters. All right. Every time I go to game night, it seems that I'm playing the same game. So once again, I'll talk about Teotihuacan, City of the Gods. 
And this time I'll just add that I'm enjoying it because every time I pick a different strategy and the fact that there are so many different strategies in the game makes it very interesting. You know, like either, you know, concentrating on building the temple or going up the path of the dead or going up the three different tracks and trying to get, you know, maximize your points. And they, so far, they've all seemed very reasonable and balanced and I've always, you know, come close or whichever. So that's Teotihuacan, City of the Gods, uh, multiple plays. It's still holding up in my opinion. I joined a growth league of a game called Infinity. Infinity is my favorite tabletop miniatures rule set. And for those of you unfamiliar with tabletop miniatures games, growth leagues are uh, just a a league play system whereby you play scenarios of increasing point costs. So you start off with very, very small skirmishes and you build your way up to usually a normal-sized game. And I haven't played much Infinity over the past year or so. You know, QV, not many two-player games. QV, the additional upkeep of having to transport your little painted figures and and so on and so forth but i you know one of my resolutions was to play more infinity so i played a couple games over the past week and it was great i still love the game infinity is a marvelous marvelous game and i love the universe however i just want to share one thing and i don't know if you've ever had this experience walker i'd be very curious about your your thoughts on this because you have played a lot of tabletop minis games in 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 your life there's a particular kind of puffery that I associate with tabletop minis games players that I find very, very tiresome. It's, it's a close cousin to the kind of puffery that you often hear from tabletop role players. So every tabletop role player will talk, and I do this the same, I, I'm, this, I'm guilty of this the same way, will talk your ear off about that one character they had, which is so awesome, and all the things they could do. This army list is the best. See how I use this item and this, yep. you know, this yep. unit together. Yep. And, and if you give them these items, then they're just unstoppable. That's the one. I see you've encountered it. Yeah, it's, no, I don't know what you're talking about. It's very tiresome, especially <laughs> it's, it, then there's also the, the the other version of that where you start talking up your own faction about how your faction's the best and how it's got the best fluff and everything else. It's like, I'm just, look, can we, uh, I'm able to join you to a certain extent. Like I'm here to help you enjoy the experience too. So I'll enthuse about your faction and all the cool stuff that it can do. But this is, this should be a reciprocal process where you're enthusing about the world and the universe. And so, uh, you know, a little bit goes a long way. And I, I just, there was a little bit too much of that. So it kind of dampened my enthusiasm for a little bit. And for what it's worth, Infinity, just because of its rule set and the way that it goes, doesn't tend to inspire a particularly kind of hyper-competitive atmosphere. So it's much less bad in Infinity than a lot of the other games that I played, but it's still there, which is unfortunate. Uh, so that was my recent experiences with Infinity. All right, the last game I'm going to talk about, I don't even have the name for it. It is a a weird little card game. <laughs> what, is it, what is it called, Mark? Yeah, so by popular demand, I showed Walker his first Eklund game. Uh, it's called Pax Palmer. This this is the one by Phil Eklund and Cole Worley and Sierra Madre Games. What did you think of Pax Palmer, Walker? I, I can, there's an appreciation for it. Like, I'm not saying it's bad or anything. I'm saying if this is something you're interested in, I think this is a fantastic game. You know what I mean? It has all of the complexity there. It has all the fluff there. It has all, you know, everything there that you'd want it to have. It is just totally, definitely 100% not for me. What was not for you about it? I, it just, it, it might've been just like, once again, my mood or whatever was going on. It just seemed to be, I just think th- th- by the time it got to your turn or it just seemed as though there's so many triggers to the end game and, and there's nothing I can do about that. And there's, there is a lot going on. Yeah. So <laughs> I've played now three of the, the Eklund PAX games, which are definitely, I think his, his biggest market successes with the exception of High Frontier. I, I, I actually uploaded an editorial about Eklund, mostly about him, not so much his games. 
for our uh, our Patreon backers. So if you're at all curious about that, you should go check out your your custom feed. And uh, it, I, I basically made a new episode of All the Games You Like Are Bad. Pax Pimer, though, was co-developed by Cole Worley, and that's one of the main reasons why I wanted to try it above and beyond wanting to be able to talk about it in the, the, the editorial. And I will say that it is probably my favorite of the Pax games so far, but that isn't saying much. The part that I really like about Pax Pamir is that there are four suits, and anytime you add a card to your tableau, because they're all tableau builders, you're either adding more spies, tribes, armies, or roads based on the kind of card that it is. Intelligence, political, military, or economic. That part is awesome. That part I thought was great. The way that units get added to the map, the way you have to balance these four different kinds of units, how they, uh, some of them are yours, some of them are only yours so long as you're loyal to the empire that backs them. That part was amazing, and the I really, really like it. The fact that the same pieces, yep. just place where you play them matter so you know you don't have all this you know glut of pieces that part was amazing as well but walker's exactly right there are all these triggers and the game can turn on a dime which isn't always a bad thing but how you win is a function of what political regime the game happens to be in and the political regime can change just by a card showing up in the market and someone snagging it and Given that if you're playing a four or five player game, we were playing with four players, there are going to be so many opportunities for even the core victory condition of the game to change by the time it comes to your turn again. And it is not possible, at least based on early experience. Now, it, all of this we, we should stress. Is under after one play. After one play of games that are very wild and the the kind of chaotic that tends to be that tends to reward experience, so you know what can happen. But given that the board state can change so much and you can't defend yourself against all four types of victory conditions, it was the case that I was looking at the tableau, I was looking at the available cards for offer, I had just taken my turn, and I looked at it and said, oh, there are four different ways that the game could end by the time before my next turn comes up, and I'm struggling to imagine a, a universe in which I could have defended myself against several of them. And that's kind of weird. So, But it's very much in keeping with the rest of the PAX games. It, it, it just is what it is. I don't have any enthusiasm for the historical period uh, depicted in PAX Pamer. It's the so-called great game during the 19th century. And the historical trappings are definitely neat. I have much more enthusiasm for the historical trappings of PAX Renaissance. But again, the historical trappings of Phil Eklund games are, are, are fraught and, and somewhat loaded. But you know, for, for more on that, there's more material elsewhere. It was interesting. I don't know, maybe I'll try it again. But again, the PAX games I don't think are really... They're probably not for me, and I definitely don't think they're for you. And I, I have to agree with that. And that was PAX Palmer. Last game I'd like to talk about is a game called Obsession, which is about pride, intrigue, and prejudice in Victorian England. Now, I am a sucker for Jane Austen. One of my uh, favorite television products of all time is the BBC A&E 1995 Pride and Prejudice ad- adaptation. I can quote amply from several scenes, but I won't. I say scenes for there are several. Okay, sorry. Sorry, that was a mistake. My apologies. Uh, let's back up. It's it's weird, though, that, that that's the subtitle because as anyone who cares at all about Austen's books will tell you, they don't take place during Victorian England. They take place during the Regency period. But I assume they, 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 they advanced to the Victorian period so they could have historical photographs 
of the various people. Anyway, uh, Obsession uh, is a very classy game about getting an express ticket to the train to Bone Town. And you, what you want to do is get your family married into an eligible family of, uh, of rich people that, is just, that have just moved into the neighborhood. And so you upgrade your house and you throw lavish parties and you invite a whole bunch of guests and you want to be seen by the right people. Certainly not. That per- she says she's from Carolina. That sounds like a made-up place. Yes. But I hear her money comes from tobacco. It's from over the water. Ooh. Those Americans. Have you heard her speak? It's barbarous. Anyway. So if you can get into the theme in kind of the way that we just did, I highly recommend Obsession. If you can't get into the theme, then it is a pretty decent multiplayer solitaire-ish Euro. There's a number of lovely little clever flourishes. There's this notion of uh, using a room and that flips it, which means that the victory points might go up, it might go down, it might change the parameters, but all in very thematically satisfying and mechanically interesting ways. Introducing a whole bunch of trade-offs about when you want to do what when, which is very, very neat. So you don't feel like in a lot of games like this where you're doing the same thing over and over and over again. It's like, well, I'm hosting this event, then I'm hosting this event. It, it's neat. And every guest that you have has its own character with its own picture and its own benefit and its own little flavor text. It's, it's, it's beautiful. It's lovely. If you like the theme, it's great. If the theme doesn't hold any appeal to you at all, then I, I really don't see that there's going to be any magic in there for you. Because as I say, it's perfectly workmanlike and it's pedest- and, and, and it, there are a number of clever touches, but it's it's hardcore multiplayer solitaire. They even admit it in the rulebook. In the section leading up to the solitaire rules, they basically say, well, look, most of the game is about hosting these events in which players can't in- interfere. So whatever, the solitaire variant works really well. It's like, yeah, you're right. You did design a game that's multiplayer solitaire. Uh- <laughs> So that's my my limited recommendation of Obsession. If you're a big fan of Austin, if you're a big fan of that, you know, it occurs to me there's not a whole lot of, uh, you know, tasteful games about human relationships. You know, there's Fog of Love, which which is doing its own thing. There's Obsession. Somewhat unthematically, un- though, you can win Obsession without getting the the, the family alliance that you're looking there for. There is a game I wish I'd, I knew we were going to talk something about this. There's a game I pl- remember play, I played after a bachelor party. Or at a bachelor party, I should say, is where you're trying to get your family member these family members these jobs, and you're moving around these different places and trying to get them hired. And and man, we had a wonderful time just talking like we just did, where it's like, yes, come, come in, and and you try to make deals, and you know, get your <laughs> sister a job, and it was one of these fantastic things where I remember it being one of the greatest games I ever played. It's amazing how much personality can be imbued in a game if you just spend the time giving these various assets, whether they're workers, whether they're guests, whatever, just a little bit of extra personality. You don't need a massive amount of flavor text. You don't necessarily need huge art budget, although that doesn't hurt, but just making sure that these resources are, are, have a little bit of personality to them, and it's great. It, it, it really does give a lovely little flourishing touch. So that was Obsession. As I say, if you're an Austin fan, I recommend it, or if you're a fan of Victorian England and the, 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 that kind of family maneuvering and, and social climbing, but otherwise, it's fine. All right, and now on to the news and why it does not matter. Here we go with IPs. And Games Workshop has sold Talisman to uh, USAopoly. Yeah, and we and talked about that, and we, and we, we wondered did. what was going to be first up. And, I was so curious for no good reason. And the nightmare has started. Here <laughs> the we go. Begins. So first of all, we have Kingdom Hearts, and then <laughs> the most painful one of all, Batman Talisman. Woo! That's going to be fantastic. I can't wait. Kingdom Hearts at least is Kill a bit Man. of a surprise. True. People, it is. And there are some people who go nuts for that crap. You know, if you happen to be in that intersection of Disney and Square Enix fandom, Kingdom Hearts is definitely your jam. 
It is most emphatically not mine. Well, sure, you got to infuse that with a what now thirty year old game. I'm sure that's going to be fantastic. <laughs> oh, sure, and my my distaste for talisman is the other part is and we commented on this when we first talked about how talisman was going to be licensed out. What is you're already talking about a relatively small group of people that will be willing to play a game like Talisman. Yes. People who are willing to engage in a two plus hour game where the rules are that weird and it's still roll and move and it's still that arbitrary. How many Kingdom Hearts fans are there in that category? Like it's, it, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm going to go into another one here so I can get through this painful part. <laughs> there is a horror movie called It, and now they're going to come out with Monopoly and a Clue game. <laughs> Based on the franchise, it. I just I saw this and I had to talk about it because because I'm gonna pull my hair out and it's so painful. And now I'm done with that, thankfully. And Mark is also done. I'll be dragging him out of here, I'm sure. Completely fini. Plus capable. I can't. No. <laughs> yes, it is. It's gonna be great. It the clue game. I can't wait. I'm gonna buy it. I'm gonna play it over and over again. It's Was it Pennywise in the sewers with his teeth? Yeah. It's always Pennywise in the sewers with his teeth, yeah, isn't it? Probably. Okay. Well, that, I, I solved it. That's it. We don't have to play it, clue it now. <clears throat> all right. Give us something good, Mark. For the love of. of okay. So so on, on the topic of going the other extreme near mechanically satisfying but utterly utterly uh, themeless, I have two entrants for uh, the category of worst expansion titles. So there's going to be an expansion for Terra Mystica, which is just going to be called Merchants. Are you excited already? Wow. Now, I will say this. I'm very pleased that these are, from what I understand, these are going to be new mechanical elements that are not present in Gaia Project. Rather than just backporting stuff from Gaia Project into Terra Mystica, which would have been very easy and I'm sure relatively successful, uh, you know, they're continuing to expand it, which, you know, kudos to them. Yeah. Terra Mystica is not my jam. Uh, but definitely, I think it loses for worst expansion title. For it, sure. To Merchants. the Teotihuacan expansion title, the late pre-classic period. Yeah, that... that what on earth? Well... What stirs excitement more than that? I do have a couple things in that. I am looking forward to it, and it's going to be a, a module expansion, right? So there'll be all sorts of different things to try. And I just said, like I said, that I'm already still enjoying it, so sort of looking forward to it. I happen to know for a fact that academics and people with rigorous academic knowledge get no traction anywhere in the world about anything. So why on earth did the one anthropologist or the one archaeologist that happens to be connected to the Teotihuacan publishing happen to convince these people that late pre-classic period was a good frickin' idea? <laughs> well, yeah, it is brutal. Anyhow, moving on. Judge Dread, a game, a, a world that I love. Uh, not anything to do with Sylvester Stallone, for sure. But other than... Hey, the, the, other, Sylv- the other movie, the Carl Urban movie, yeah, was pretty good. It's good. It's great. Yeah. That's what I mean. Other than the Sylvester Stallone okay. movie. Okay, okay. Everything comic book Judge Dredd, the world of Judge Dredd I love. Wildlands I wasn't overly fond of, but uh, maybe with the Judge Dredd skin on it, that's going to be amazing. So there's going to be a Judge Dredd based on the Wildlands uh, uh, game. And... Uh, I'm looking forward to that. Because there's another Judge Dredd game that called The Cursed Earth uh, that's going to be released, which is based on The Lost Expedition. I'm sorry, I got the two confused. Did you ever play Block Panic? Block Panic. This was an old game. Is that the Games Workshop one? That was the Games then, Workshop yes. one. Yes. And it was designed, it was one of the very, very few published designs designed by the uh, Richard Halliwell, who did Space Hawk. Nice. I don't remember it, but I know I played it. It was cute. It allowed, it had destructible terrain, which. Was neat. You could like destroy the the, the big mega cities. Yeah, I was gonna say, wasn't there a tower thing? And you had to sort yes. of balance your. Yeah, uh, sort it of was, remember. It was neat. 
another 30-year-old game. Right. So Restoration Games is going to be uh, coming out with a a product line that is based on the Epic Duels game, which was originally a Star Wars game. It didn't really do much for me, but it has a big, big audience and is still fetching pretty good prices on the secondary market. It is going to be called Unmatched. Uh, I will start with the things that make me incredibly unenthused about it. It's It's a motley assortment of characters from history and mythology. I will just I think can be encapsulated by one of the expansion packs, which will contain Robin Hood versus Bigfoot. I think that I've already... Yeah. Yeah, that, yeah. I mean, that stands by itself you've, right there. You've, you've hooked me already. I, I painted the except, picture. However... Except the complete opposite. I was so ready to just write this off, uh, but now I'm mildly intrigued because they're resurrecting the best part of Tannhauser, which we haven't seen in any other game, which was the line of sight system, which was very, very cute and cool, and I haven't seen it elsewhere. And they're 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 very clearly tipping their hat to it, and they're saying, yeah, we're going we're gonna to have a little bit more of a robust notion of line of sight than there was in Epic Duels. Epic Duels was incredibly simple. Everyone just had unlimited uh, line of sight on a, uh, on just on a cross pattern, so if you're on a diagonal, nobody could see each other. And uh, so, yeah, they're going to be using the Tannhauser line of sight system, which, for those who are unfamiliar with it, every space has a colored circle with some number of colors in it. And basically, if, you, if you're trying to shoot at something that is, has the same color in its circle, you can see each other. If not, not. So no arguments, no, have to, no having to check anything. It's all very simple and can allow you to make a line of sight system as complicated as you want geographically while still being trivial to process visually, which was kind of cool. So maybe this will be in the second forgettable game that uses a cool solution for line of sight. Who knows? Last bit of news, and this isn't even so much news as just flagging something that has come up again, very much like the repeated boil that you have to lance over and over. This is that Age of Steam will be coming out soon. As I reported a few months ago, it is indeed the case that Age of Steam is now going to be published with no designer credit on the box and no designer credit in the rulebook. I'm not going to give you a summary as to why this is. Suffice to say that there are two individuals, both of which who maintain they designed the game, and there have been a number of trademark issues going back and forth again uh, between them. But now uh, there has been more public discussion, some of it on BoardGameGeek from Martin Wallace, who is one of the people who claims to have designed Age of Steam, and who says that this this current edition is a theft of, of his intellectual property. And there have been some public comments by John Borer, who's the guy who licensed Age of Steam to Eagle Griffin Games, on whose behalf uh, uh, they will be publishing it, who has commented, although not on Board Game Geek, because he was banned on Board Game Geek. So suffice to say that there's a lot going on, and there are a lot of comments to sift through if you're all inclined to go through the Spielkiss. All that we are going to say, and I think Walker will back me up here, we're not going to take sides here, The only thing I will say is this. I think it is tragic that we are now in a position that a game, especially a well-regarded game that's been in and out of print for for well over a decade, is now going to be designed with no director's credit. Effectively the equivalent of an Alan Smithy on the box and in the rulebook. It's a shame that we've come to this. And I I wish that it weren't so. I'm not blaming anyone. Whose fault it is we're not going to make a comment. The only comment I'm going to make is I find this tragic. Yeah. Kind of brutal. But I wonder if they're doing it just for that case, right? If they put the one guy's name on it, then the other guy can have a problem. If they put the well, other well, name on yeah. it, he can no, no, sue no. for some of the money. No, of course, of that. course. If they put nothing on it, then they're free, sort of free and clear. Well, well, well that's just it. The, the absence of the name itself is not the cause of this problem. It is just the final symptom yeah. of this problem. Yeah. I'm not saying that something could be solved if they picked a name and went with it. No. Quite the contrary. It's just, it's a shame that the situation has come to this. That's all. And that is our official editorial position on the Age of Steam fiasco. Oh, and the fact that it looks terrible. Like, they use it's the, the primary colors and the whole uh, graphic design of the game. That's why I didn't even put it. That's why it's not in my news, because it, it 
was unappealing. People to me. love Ian O'Toole. Ian O'Toole is the, is the graphic. They love his stuff. Oh, uh, there you go. Maybe it's for them. I, very much so. All right, and that's the news and why it doesn't matter. On to the feature game, which I thought was Concordia, but apparently it's Concordia Venus. What's what, what's the Venus part? Is the expansion with the the, the team base? The game, oh, okay. the game predates that. Okay. Gotcha. Well, so, well, we're going to talk about the expansion. I'm assuming we're going to talk we're about We're going to talk about it all. We're going to talk about it all. All right. Well, then there you go. So I just got kind of worried. I thought maybe... Uh, no, no, no. All right. So, Mark, how did Concordia come about? All right. So first of all, we need some disclaimers here. And again, this is very much part of our editorial policy. I have a great deal of difficulty talking about a lot of Matt Gertz designs because I've been involved in a variety of them to various extents. I haven't been on the development team for Matt Gertz design uh, since Antica Dwellum in 2012, but I've been doing translation and editing work for Mac uh, ever since uh, 2007, and I've been I've been doing that up till now. So, uh, basically, uh, not to put too fine a point on it, other than his first two published designs, my name is probably somewhere in the rulebook on everything that he's put out um, since then. So, obviously, I'm I'm a bit compromised in that sense. I just want to disclose these these uh, uh, attachments I have right away. I don't have any personal relationship with Mac past that. We've had friendly emails about editing rulebooks and translating rulebooks, as well as uh, Peter Dorsum, the publisher, through uh, P.D. Verlag. And several of his games I've received complimentary copies of as a result of my being part of the editorial process. The base game of Concordia, I did get a complimentary copy of, again, not for review purposes, but because I, I'd been involved in the development team. And expansions, though, that he's released. So in the case of, of Concordia specifically, we're talking about Concordia Venus as well as Concordia Salsa. Those I did pay out of pocket for and those I purchased myself. So all of those disclaimers out of the way, setting that aside, let's talk about Concordia. So Mac designed uh, and released Concordia in 2013 and his design pedigree, I, I have to say, is probably pound for pound in terms of just quality of releases the best of any other working designer that I know of. Because his first published design was Antica, which is one of my top 10 games, uh, spe- specifically in its uh, 2014 remake, Antica 2. His second published design was Imperial, which is also a top 10 game of mine, also under its uh, 2009 remake, Imperial 2030. But he's designed a whole bunch of other games that I've really, really enjoyed. Among them, The Princess of Machu Picchu. Among them, Navigador, which I think is a fabulous Euro-efficiency game that shows other Euro-efficiency games how to do it. And one of the things that unites most of Mac's work is his Rondel system, which is an action selection system that forces you to make very careful trade-offs with respect to tempo and so- timing and other sorts of trade-offs. Concordia again, released in 2013, was striking in that it was his first major published design that did not have a rondel system. Instead, it has what could be called a hand management system whereby you have a deck of cards and you play cards and manage your actions and that. And since he released it, there have been two major expansions. One of them, as I said, Salsa, and then the new one, which was released late last year, although it's really only hitting the market in 2019, is Concordia Venus, which introduced a new team play element. And more on all this later. Uh, so, Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary of what one does in Concordia? So unhelpful. All right. In my, my opinion, Concordia is in a constant state of flux. Because like we said, you have a hand of cards. You're constantly playing them out. You have to decide when you're going to pull them back in. So you have to decide from the cards you have left what you're going to play. There's also a pool of cards that you're going to be buying that are going to be disappearing when it's not your turn. So you don't know what's going to be left there. There's going to be people snatching up buildings, blocking you. So you're not sure exactly where you're going to be able to move. So all of these things are changing, which sometimes 
is a negative to me, like, because, you know, you might as well just put your head down and wait for your turn. But I think this is what Concordia is all about. It's this constant state of change and you have to be able to adapt when it's your turn, figure out what's going on, get the maximum effectiveness out of your turn and move on. And like, you know, be able to turn on a dime saying, okay, this isn't working. I need to now move into this part of the board and now change my whole strategy here and be able to, you know, flip on a dime like that. It really feels though that is what Concordia is all about. Allow me to borrow a famous Walker phrase and let us talk about the flow. When I think of any, I'm hard pressed to imagine games with better flow than most of Mac's games. And Concordia is certainly no exception because on your turn, and this is indeed how I explain how to play Concordia to new players. I set up the board, I give everybody cards and I say, on your turn, you play a card and you do what it says it does. The game ends when there are no cards left or everyone's, or someone's placed all their houses. That's the game. Let me explain what cards do. And then usually someone's like, well, wait, how do, uh, how do I get more cards? Like, slow down. I'll get there. How do I put a slow down? It's a card. How do I get my cards back? It's a card. Everything is about you just play a card, do what it says it does. And many of them are relatively straightforward, but there's no round structure. You just keep going round and round and round until all this is done. And it isn't, it's true that you have to remain flexible to determine what you're going to be doing with your cards. And, you know, a, a better tuned deck might be slightly better at that than, uh, than others. But that is one of the, 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 the essential elements of the Mac design that keeps, that keeps me coming back to them over and over. That is how incredibly smooth and fast moving they are. Not necessarily even fast moving in terms of incredibly dynamic board state, but just in the sense that your turns, although substantial and represent, uh, force you to engage in tactical and strategic trade-offs, they're so quick and they're so dynamic and the game moves along at such an excellent rapid clip that I can't help but find myself engaged as a result. I agree. Like I said, you have to be ready on your turn. A lot of times I knew what I was going to be doing because I needed, you know, either resources or I needed to do something before I could do what I wanted. So a lot of the times I had a card down ready to go. Once my turn, flip it up, do it. There was some people that needed to think it out and take time. But like you said, the flow is real. When it's your turn, you turn it over, you do a, a single simple action and it's the next person's turn and off you go. Yeah, the most complicated action in Concordia is probably the architect action, where you're moving your quote-unquote colonists around and you're building new houses. And this actually is one of the one of the central reasons, uh, one of the central categorizations of Max games uh, that I think helps identify why I'm not as big on Concordia as I am on other games. Because for reference, I think the Concordia is probably his second weakest design of his that I've played, which is a kind of a backhanded compliment because I love all of Mac's designs. True. Well, we've talked about before how in in conflict games, when you are blocked from attacking people, where the board state makes it so you cannot do your action. So I'm thinking, is that like where you're going, where that's not where you're shaking his head? I, I've totally got it wrong. But that this can, I'll just go on and, you know, dig my hole even deeper. You do that. The fact that this is what happens in Concordia, we'll just cover this part, is when you move these citizens and ships out, they move along paths between two cities and only one person can be on these paths. So there is uh, also a blocking strategy that you can use. There's a way you can build up your citizens quick and block off certain parts of the map so they can't, so other people can't, you know, move there and take, you know, control of them. It is definitely a, a, a semi uh, area majority game as well. I don't know. I think it's it's one of those instances of blocking that I find less satisfying, especially, again, if you want to compare it to Max other games. I find the player interaction in Concordia to be less satisfying than a lot of other uh, uh, a lot of other games. It is absolutely the case that sometimes your colonists will be blocking other players. 
usually I think by accident. I can't remember the last time somebody put a colonist somewhere knowing full well that it was to deprive somebody else of, of table presence. Uh, maybe that's just because I'm not very good at the game. Maybe I wasn't noticing what was going on. But I, you know, one of the ways in which I wish Concordia were different were, was that it would have rel- relatively more substantial player interaction. The substantial opportunity cost that you have in Concordia is if you build a house somewhere where someone else has already built a house, it just costs more cash. And that's not nothing. That can be a considerable expense. But again, typically other players would have gotten there first, not specifically to block you, just because it helped them out and because they needed a house there too. If there were an element of conscious blocking, I would probably think that the player interaction were substantially better. But what I was actually going to talk about was that in Concordia, you have what what I what I'm going to tentatively call accountancy planning because there are a variety of different kinds of resources, which is fine, and building different houses in different kinds of cities requires a specific combination of resources. As a result, if when getting your resources, you were off by a single detail, you're not going to be able to build where you wanted to build, which is fine. The problem is that kind of calculation of filling out a specific set of recipes, I don't find a pleasant kind of planning task in Euro games. Let me compare it to a, a very popular series of games that you might have heard of, the Catan games. In Catan games, you also need a very specific set of resources in order to build something. But in all Catan games, trading is built into that. So if you're short of wheat, if you've got an extra stone but you don't have the wheat for something, the system recognizes that and there's a built-in safety valve. In the base game of Concordia, if it's the case that you're short of brick so you can't build your house, you're short the brick. That's it. You're just not going to be able to do it. You have to go and do other things. And that's fine. But again, in order to be maximally efficient, you need to have planned out a specific list of specific resources that you need to get at a specific time. This is true of some of his other games like uh, Hamburgum or Prince's Machu Picchu. And these are also some of my less preferred Mac games. I prefer his other games and indeed other Euro games where the universe of resources is comparatively small. So you don't need to plan out with that exacting degree of specificity the long list of things you need to do to spend them on later. Does that make sense? It totally does. Let's go over some good points and something I already talked about. Many paths to victory. So like I said, I, I haven't seen this work, but I, like I want to try it. I want to see this blocking, like go really hard on getting all your citizens out and blocking parts of the map and the fact that there are uh, all of the cards that you have in your hand at the beginning of the game and all the cards that you purchase during the game, they all have different victory conditions on the bottom. We'll go over those later, I'm sure. And one of them is uh, points for having citizens out. So if you get a whole bunch out, then you're going to get lots of points. And that's another way you can get uh, another path of victory is just bloating your deck with a whole bunch of victory point things and just trying to get a large amount of small victory points. Or you can go really hard on particular cards, like either have, you know, the most, uh, have be spread out in all the different continents, have a bunch of houses out, have a bunch of goods, have, there's all sorts of, different victory point conditions and you can go hard at a particular area and try to get lots of points that way. This is one of those Euro games that manages to pull off complicated scoring well. We've complained a lot about games where the victory conditions are so convoluted and complicated that it's really not possible to eyeball the board state and or it's difficult to, con- to, to conceive of how well you're doing and it just makes the game feel unfocused in an unsatisfying way. Concordia's scoring system is, is probably the most complicated part of the game, but you never need to worry about it because it's all built into the cards. If you buy a card, it's going to have a victory condition at the bottom. At the end of the game, every card you have bought, every card you have scores. And that's all you need to know. And so you can resort to heuristics very, very easily. 
It's like, oh, well, that card rewards me for having lots of colonists. That's not really my bag. I think I'll go buy something else. Or I need to go buy the card for the card for what it is, not necessarily for its victory condition. That kind of trade-off, I think, is good and interesting. And sometimes when considering what card to buy, you do indeed need to consider, do I want this card for efficiency purposes? Or do I want this card for scoring purposes or some combination of both? Or do I think I'm going to pivot to another scoring uh, uh, condition later on? And that part, I think, is another way in which Concordia managed to be incredibly accessible and flow very, very smoothly. I've never, I've encountered lots of people who are often tempted to slow a game down and math out the various consequences of things. And I've played Concordia with them and they don't do it there. They don't pause to say, okay, well, this card is going to be worth uh, nine points now, maybe 12 if I do this other thing. Nobody is tempted to do that, again, simply because of the way the card flow works and it's built in. So all the complexity is offloaded into a card system, which is exactly what card systems tend to do very, very well. I agree. I've often complained about getting huge lumps of points at the end of the game. And this is what Concordia is all about. Right. There is no scoring during the game whatsoever. Unless, all... you're pl- unless you're playing the beginner variant and that's only to get money. But yeah, yeah setting that and aside. And then in Concordia, so it's just, everyone, just, you score all these tons of cards, you really have no idea what people are getting unless, you know, you're paying attention or you see how, you know, it's slowing down. Because so you, you know what their base deck is and then you can sort of see what they're buying or how they're, you know, it's like, oh, okay, he's obviously, you know, got his all his houses out. I've seen him buy a couple of his cards. This is roughly what he has. You know, I just need to outscore him. But other than that, and I, and I, for whatever reason, like you said, I just don't have a problem with it. It's just, it's what Concordia is. One of the ways in which I wish the card system worked a little bit better was that I don't find the tempo constraints offered by your cards to be particularly satisfying, precisely because the primary way you win a game of Concordia, and this is a gross oversimplification, but it, it, it'll it get you pretty far, is building as many houses as you can and buying as many cards as you can. And you are limited in both of these things based on whether or not you have the cards to do these things. Now, you can buy lots of other architect cards, which means you can build houses more frequently. And that's great. And that gives you extra efficiency. And that's cool. However, buying cards, buying new cards, tends to be very carefully throttled by the system because otherwise the game could spiral out of control very quickly and someone could crush everyone else. So that's fine. But as a result, what that means is the tempo hit of playing the card to get all your cards back stings less because you know once you've played a couple times, this gets you that much closer to buying more cards, which means you're getting closer to winning. Which means that an inefficient deck is not a bad deck. An inefficient deck sometimes is the very best way to go about doing things because you're not tempted to play it out longer. You get... You get back to that place of buying more cards sooner, which, again, is not a serious criticism. It's just another way to differentiate Concordia from the rest of Mac's work because so many of his games give you these beautiful little tempo trade-offs, whereas in Concordia, it's a very pleasant, fast-moving experience, but sometimes I feel like it's just a little bit too much of, eh, do whatever you want whenever you want it. The primary constraint that I run up against is not about tempo. It's not about trade-offs. It's, again, did I buy the right laundry list? when I had the opportunity to get resources. And what also feeds into that is that it differs from all other deck builders is the fact that when you buy a card, it goes into your hand as opposed to your your discard pile. So if you need to do something right away, you know, you buy a card, the card you need, and then the very next turn you do what you need and you don't need to do the reset. So that's another reason why it's sort of do what you want when you want type thing. And I'm wondering how it would play if you did it the other way around if you bought a card and went right into your discard pile as opposed. I wonder if it would be... uh, the flow would be knocked down or if it would be more interesting. It'd be curious to play it that way. I don't know. That's an interesting question. I got one more point. Good point. Go for it. Two different ways to end the game. Mark already talked about this very quickly. Either as soon as someone gets all their buildings out or all of the games out of the pool have all been purchased up. 
then the game ends, and it's. Uh, I think it's very because it feeds into two different strategies as well, right? You can, like I've already talked about, either getting a lot of cards or particular cards, or spreading across the map, and you can like force the end, and you can see it sort of coming. And I really like when there's multiple ways for a game to end. So to, to sort of sum up my feelings about Concordia, the base game, I like it. I think it's a really good game. I'm a little bit mystified, though, as to why this is the design by Mac that has really caught on. I did a little bit of checking on Board Game Geek, and I don't take Board Game Geek ranking as a representation of quality, much less of critical consensus, but it does represent how many ratings it's got and what the overall average for those ratings are tends to be. The rank of Concordia is 21, which is his highest ranked game, and I'm very glad he's gotten success. He deserves all the success in the world. I think he's a brilliant designer. But his second highest ranked game is Imperial at 155, which is a considerable gulf. Just regular Imperial. Yeah. 20, okay. Imperial 2030 has fewer ratings but a much higher average rating. Uh, but it's ranked lower. As a result, it's ranked lower because there's fewer ratings, uh, which is, which is weird for me because his next three three highest ranked games: Imperial at 155, Navigador at 182, and Antica at 625, is bizarre to me because Imperial, Navigador, and Antica are brilliant. Those three games, I think, are marvelous, marvelous games that every every hobbyist gamer deserves. Uh, chance to try. And I, to a certain extent, I understand why Concordia is more popular. It's even yet more accessible even than Antica, which is a very, very, very approachable game. But I'm just, as I say, I'm a little mystified. That's all. Well, before we move on to the, the expansion, I want to just go over my one and only bad point. There's this sideboard that is used in the game called the Forum. And you use this Forum. That's an expansion. That's an expansion piece. Okay, so in the expansions that we're going to talk about, like I just said before Mark interrupted me, because I said we're going to talk about the expansions now. Is it in the Celsa expansion where it came out? Well, in the Celsa expansion, the thing I like don't like about the Celsa expansion, like I was saying before I was so rudely interrupted, is this thing called the Forum. It's a sideboard that you use, and whenever you play the card that resets your deck where you take all your cards back... You count how many cards you're taking back, and based on the number of cards you're bringing back into your hand, you're going to get a benefit. It's all these tiles that are out there. And I just find that the symbology is fairly terrible on the cards. It slows the game down. It makes it harder to know what your opponents are doing because you have to constantly watch and see what, you know, because they, they break rules. It lets them do things they're not normally allowed to do. So you sort of have to keep track of, you know, everything that's going on. I do actually. I, there's two points, bad points I have. Another, I feel Concordia goes on too long. I really, think the game is 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 too long. Hmm. Okay, so about 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 Concordia salsa. Um, I think one of the reasons why I like the forum actually is that it helps speed the game along a little bit. And I like toys. I like getting toys in games. I like having little toys. You're absolutely right that it that it makes it a little bit more difficult to parse someone else's board position because you have to reinternalize what their little toys do. But they're relatively minor. You're not talking about a huge influx of toys. You're talking about a small handful that anyone's going to get at any time. So that And that part can easily be jettisoned. So in future, we don't have to play no, with the sideboard. All that what, being said, if you play Concordia enough, then I think it... Because, like we said, you don't play the reset very often because you can buy cards and continue to turn on. If you start to get to know these tiles and you can see them coming up, maybe that's why they introduce it. It'll force people to say, oh, I really want that, so I'm going to reset my hand now to get that, maybe that's... I'm not sure I'm saying maybe that is another way to play. I don't know. Yeah, I've done that sometimes. The, the big thing that Concordia Salsa introduces is that it introduces salt, which is salsa in, in, in Latin. 
and salt is a wild resource. And the primary reason why I like that is because it introduces that little bit of flexibility to, as I said, the rigid accountancy planning that the game otherwise has. You know, in Concordia, you don't have, you know, if you're desperately short that brick, you can just throw a salt at it and be done with it, and you can still get where you need to go. That expedites the game. It makes things a little less brutally unforgiving in terms of, again, just plotting out the recipe list of things you need. And so that is the part that I think is absolutely essential, and I would never uh, go without. Uh, Just the ability to found salt cities and, and, and get wild resources. Another broad area of expansions, which is worth touching on uh, briefly, is that Concordia now has a bazillion different maps, and only two of them introduce new rules, and those are relatively light. The rest of them are just new maps. Some of them have kind of interesting bits of geography, but quite frankly, the rules overhead is, is non-existent. You know, I don't, I don't find them mixing, I don't find that they mix the game up hugely, uh, but they're nice to have for a little bit of variety. Well, I was gonna, that's what I was going to put that into, is the fact that Every game you play will be different. Replayability is huge because not only are there different maps to play, but uh, when you seed the board, what every city resource is going to be, that's also random. And the, with the way the cards are going to come out is random. And it's, it's a great, uh, lots of replayability in Concordia. Yeah, it's one of those games where the first couple turns tend to follow a relatively scripted pattern. A lot of people tend to do the same things. How is this ever going to get into any variation? But as of turn, you know, three or four, suddenly everyone's off doing crazily different things. Not in a wild way, but just in a way of, you know, there's lots of variety and the game state can emerge in, in, in lots of different ways. Uh, so let's talk about the newest expansion, Concordia Venus, which was put out last year. And it introduces uh, more new maps because, of course, slightly changed base game cards uh, because you can get... So the way this was distributed was was kind of interesting. You can either get it as an expansion, which introduces a couple new maps, a re, slightly altered base game deck, uh, or as a base game by itself, which just has two maps, a, a slightly changed base game deck, and in both cases, you get the team play variant, whereby you're playing in teams of two. So you're either playing a four or six player game and you have a partner and more or less the rules are anytime you play a card, your partner will then do the same thing on the card afterwards with a couple of minor exceptions. What are your thoughts on Venus Walker? I feel that it completely changes the game in my opinion, because it's that puts a whole new strategy in it. You need to look over and see what your partner has. And I, I've played this a few times, and in every time there's been one player that's hated it because they're not watching what their partner does, and their partner is not watching what they're doing. They want to play their own game. They want to do what they need to do, and they got utterly crushed, whereas the people that are watching, it's like, okay, well, I can't do this action because he doesn't have enough resources, or this this action will help us both out, or I'm going to set this up because this is obviously what we both need to do now. So it's... It, puts a whole different level of strategy into the game. I personally love it. I'd rather play that way than the regular way, but that's just me. Yeah, I really don't like it. <laughs> I really don't like the, the Venus version. I, I, I think... So the, the, the changes to the, the base game cards are fine. O- overall, the, the, the changes are fine and the new maps are fine. The team play version, I feel, really doubles down on this whole sort of accountancy planning element. Not only, in order to be maximally efficient, not only do you need to have bought all of the stuff to get your, your ducks in a row, but every time you play a card, you ideally ought to be thinking of whether your, whether your teammate has all the resources they need to be able to capitalize off of this. And I, I agree with you. The extent to which it changes the gameplay dynamic is fascinating but it changes it into a game that I like less. Concordia's strengths to me are how smooth it is, how fast moving it is, 
and how you're able to exert a kind of strategic and tactical flexibility like you talked about. Venus, I think, undermines all of those things. The game becomes more slow, more deliberative in a way that I do not find enjoyable. It introduces structurally fascinating but gameplay unsatisfying bickering between uh, between uh, teammates it really as a social experiment as a social experience it's really interesting it's fantastic I, I just don't <laughs> find it enjoyable especially not in a game like Concordia so the 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 kind of social mileage that you get out of very subtle rules changes is really intellectually fascinating and it's not something I enjoyed experiencing at all I enjoyed like you, like you said just because the game I played not only were they teammates, they became opponents. They started deliberately playing cards <laughs> that the other couldn't use because they were so frustrated. And then because I, you can use the it's your money is in sort of a pool, so it's like, oh, you have some money. I'll just spend all of that. So now you have none. And it was just, it was like I'm just like sitting back watching what's going on. And it's like this is fantastic. I love it. But that that I think emphasizes what I think might be the core cause of one of your complaints. You think that the game lasts too long. I think that Concordia base game or with Salsa is a great length, 75-ish minutes, even with new players. Concordia Venus, on the other hand, can stretch in excess of two hours because you have to, you know, normally because there's relatively little player interaction in a game of Concordia, you might have to figure out, okay, well, I'll settle this city because I can't afford to settle this other city or, oh, well, the card I wanted to buy, I can't buy, so I'll do something else. But in Venus... Suddenly all your money's gone because your partner spent it all. Or suddenly you have to worry about not just your your resources, but your your partner's resources. And it and as a result, it often just doubles the length of time it takes to to, to just play a single card. And honestly, I, I the, the games of Venus that I played have dragged as a result. Obviously, if we only played with expert players, that would go down to a considerable extent. But it's kind of baked into the system. It really doubles the universe of, of resources you need to consider. Well, I wonder if that's why I put it. Because I played regular Concordia a lot, you know, a while ago. Whereas all my recent plays have all been Venus and maybe... You know, the length, that's why I've put that in there. Maybe because I, I've forgotten how quick it normally plays and because we play with Venus more right. lately. And Maybe. It, it's gone longer than I thought it should. Yeah, so it, it's, it really is an interesting dynamic that I was tired of after 15 minutes. It was just... It's so weird how it's so polarizing because, like you said, there's like three people now that I know hate it and three, you know, some people that love it. And, yep. I, and I think that's what makes... It is, sometime inc- it is really incredibly awesome. polarizing, yeah. I love it. Yeah, and, and honestly, I you know, I talk about how Concordia I really like, but it's not my favorite Mac Ertz design. Uh, Concordia Venus is by far the thing he's put out that I enjoy the least. You know, in the entire universe of things that he's done, base games and expansions, Venus has been the most unpleasant thing. So I think it's fair to say that we're both big fans of Mac Gertz. You're a huge fan. We're both yes. huge fans of Imperial. We both like Ansika. I probably like it more than you do, but we're, we both enjoy the game. Base game Concordia, we both see some virtues in it. They're, they're, but now it's an entire product line, right? We're talking about a whole bunch of maps. We're talking about Salsa. We're talking about Venus. And we seem to have very differing opinions on all of those things. But at its core, what you still have is a very, very clean, very, very low-intensity in a good way, Euro management game with arguably some of the best flow in the genre. And that's not nothing. I kvetch about its ranking compared to other Mackert's designs, but that's mostly because I think that Antica and uh, Imperial should be in the top 10, uh, not because I'm shocked that people like Concordia. Yes. I do enjoy Concordia. We didn't really talk about the art. The art is great. The graphic design is fantastic. I feel it, the whole game itself, even though it's not a rondel system, it's much, you know, making decisions about 
losing on some. It's, it's very much like the run. It's very much like antique. I feel you know, you know, getting the resources, moving around the map, taking areas, and I want to play more of Concordia. So that was Concordia, including its expansions Salsa and Venus. Now let's move on to our main topic of the week, which is spending money on the hobby. Are you getting your money's work? Walker, I have a question for you. Yes. Are you getting your money's worth? I think so. In most cases, no. Yes. No, yes? In most cases. This is mostly in today's world. There's demand on our funds constantly from all different areas, be it your house, your family. Back in the day, all of this was free? This is some weird golden age revisionism going on. I don't know. (laughs) Life has always been expensive. It has been. And and I, I, I want to make this list to make sure that people are getting the most out of what they do spend on this hobby of ours. Sure. I think the biggest problem, I was thinking about this in terms of how, how to get mileage out of a gaming dollar. And I really do think that Kickstarter is to blame for a lot of some of the spending difficulties now. And here, here's why. Pr- simply because of the way release schedules work now. Again, we've, we've talked about this a lot, but one of the consequences of Kickstarter product lines launching as complete product lines all at once is most of the time it doesn't work the way that, say, Concordia works, right? Concordia was released five years ago, an expansion a couple years after that, a map every now and then, a new big box expansion now. That's not how most projects work anymore because a lot of the publishing is now being driven by Kickstarter where you start out with a base game and then you get all this other stuff loaded on right at launch based on stretch goals. And Above and beyond any other problems you have, that makes spending decisions really hard. I I was in a position to know that I wanted to get Concordia expansions. If Concordia, if I didn't know Mac and, you know, I wasn't attached to the project, blah, 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 and it were a Kickstarter project, how am I supposed to know whether I want all this stuff right in the outset? It's it's a bit of a headache. Yeah, I have two things that feed into that. Do you want to wait for the retail to actually come out where you can see real reviews and have the game actually, you know, being played multiple times by players and see it fleshed out to see whether it's something that you want, right? And I think that's what I'm going to start doing more of. Even though you're going to miss out on some of the fancy bits or being the first one to have it, I think, you know, getting the game and seeing it, if it, you know, through the test of time, seeing if it's going to actually hold up is something that you should wait for if, you know, if it's a problem. But who could people turn to, Walker? Who can they trust? Uh, nobody. For, oh, that's, that's Definitely sad. not us. Because we're curmudgeons and we hate everything. Um, the I, next th- thing, I thought we were sellout shills. The next thing we, you touched on was expansions, right? And the thing I have here, which is going to be an ongoing thing, is is this a game that you're playing a lot? Like it, you have to be able to justify buying expansions. And I, I've I've gone I've gone into that about quite a while ago. Actually, it's like when it, I used to be get every expansion for every game I own. Now I just say, well, that game has not hit the table. I'm not going to buy that expansion because there is no point because we don't play it. So. That's another consideration you have to make. You know, is this game getting played enough that warrants you buying the expansion? I've been thinking about expansions, again, often in the context of Kickstarter projects that I, that I want to support. Because, you know, I, I have I have the completionist bug the way a lot of board gamers do. And sometimes I want to get in on a project because, you know, I think the base pledge is worthwhile. But then it's a question of, well, which add-ons do you get? Because sometimes... More and more, it's the case, and we've, we've talked a lot about the, 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 the evolving nature of Kickstarter releases, where you can expect that there's going to be a reprint project very shortly after the initial release, and you're going to be able to get all that stuff later. But sometimes you can't, 
And that's where, you know, call it FOMO, call it completionism, some combination of two. You have to make these decisions. I've gotten a little bit better recently at triaging different kinds of expansions. If it's something that's like what I would call a core add-on for me, like new factions that you can include in every game where it's just people just have more choices – then I, I, the threshold for me is a little bit lower. I'm much more keen on trying to get as many of those as possible. The more ancillary stuff, the weirder offshoot bits, that's the stuff that I'm really not getting much of anymore. And to, to just give an example in terms of Cthulhu Wars, I'm going to be getting some more Cthulhu War stuff, I don't know, sooner or later, depends, uh, slow boat from China. If they, When there are new factions, I find that a relatively easy thing to do because they add considerable gameplay value and even new players can benefit from that. And so even if it doesn't hit the table, you know, five times in the space of a single month, you're going to be able to be able to use it. But some of the more ancillary stuff, like the independent great old ones, like, okay, here's a sideboard where this other thing is happening. Here's this other thing where we bid on to, to get this new thing into the game. That stuff, it's like, look, do I know that the group is going to really take to this game and want to play it all the time? Eh, I don't know. So let's leave it at the side. That's the kind of thing that I can I can deal with that having. That, that's another point I have for just getting games in general. Will it fit into your group? Do you already have a game that fills all the the basis that this new game is going to do? Like you have to you know consider. Do I already have a game that's exactly like this? But you know, so these are all things that you have to think of. Yeah, I uh, just to, to to pick up what we talked about at the beginning. I don't get two player games anymore. Yeah, or we just picked up, you know, Siege of the Citadel. Do we really need another, you know, one V all game? Yeah, that was a mistake. No, we really did not. Yeah, that that was. <laughs> yeah, in so terms that, of that our, just feeds yeah. right into what we we're just talking about. Yeah. That was a purchase that was completely unnecessary. Yes. Other than the fact that we want to review it and we want to see it and we want to, you know, be able to tell you guys about. Right. It. As consumers, it was a mistake. Yes. As tastemakers. As professional, yeah. <laughs> professional reviewers. Oh, we're so full of crap. I know, it's so brutal. We should say something about that at the beginning of every episode. Um, yeah, in terms of, of games competing in the same space, I look back at some of my purchases as well. Again, as a consumer, and I think they were a bit of a mistake, I think of things like Paper Tales. I really like Paper Tales. I think it's great. I already have Fairy Tale, and Fairy Tale is a small card game. Like, honestly, I've been, I've been thinking more again about, you know, the, the value of card games. You know, thinking of, again, comparing good critters to cash and guns. Maybe I should say every time I compare good critters to cash and guns saying, well, good critters is a $20 card game as opposed to cash and guns, which is a $50 board game. And they fulfill the same objectives. They last about the same amount of time. They have the same number of players. And, oh, by the way, I think the card game is better. Like, but maybe... Maybe it wouldn't have to be better. Maybe it would just have to be almost as good. These are questions that I, I think that maybe sometimes the hobby should take more seriously in the context of things. And again, I, I talked when I, I mentioned this when reviewing Paper Tales. Paper Tales with the expansion, I think, is a very, very approachable, solid, fast-moving game that can go up to seven players. But it's it's like 70 bucks after we're talking about the base game of the expansion. Fairy Tale will do you two to five and will cost you 15. So yeah, maybe talk- I'm an idiot is what I'm saying. If we're going to talk about exact games, it's like like pile up all of the deck builders I have. I like the what's that? What's that Arctic the scavenger? Arctic, Arctic, Arctic scavenger. Arctic scavenger. Yeah, that, that game that, that takes place in the Arctic, Arctic for you scavenge. Yeah, Arctic, what was that called again? Arctic scavengers, Xeno shift, Mystic Veil. You know, you go on and on. How many deck builders do you need? And when there are the realms games, which can get you for twenty bucks, or Fards of Infinity, which is twenty bucks. You know, exactly. now in the case of deck builders. Um, you know, again, you might you might want to justify having a co-op or two or something like Correct. that. But yeah, like even even when you have a big fat collection like we have, maybe maybe we shouldn't be doing all this stuff. The other thing that that I've been thinking of is, uh, and th- this is going to be an easy pass for me in terms of saving money, 
is reprints. I'm I think I'm done with reprints. Like that was just that was just a mistake. Like Iwari. Iwari is burning up the Kickstarter charts, and that's great. That's wonderful. Iwari is a great game. I own it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's called Han. I paid twenty bucks for it. You can get Han for twenty bucks now if you want. Why don't you go get Han for twenty bucks instead of being a hundred euros for something with inlaid uh uh oh I'm exaggerating, but yeah, and it's got more maps. Sure, fine. And it's it's got some variety. I'm sure it'll be very pretty three years from now whenever it fi- it finally arrives. But in an environment where that money could allow me to take some gambles on some independent small weird projects, a couple more Hollenspiel games, for example. May you know, because what say whatever you want about a Hollenspiel game. Uh, we we both had uh, we both love Meltwater. We had our misgivings about some other stuff, but you're not going to be looking at a Hollenspiel game and saying, "Oh, well, that just duplicates something that I've already got." Exactly, right? That's for sure. And so maybe maybe it's time that idiots like me uh, stop getting. Uh, reprints of games that I already have with a facelift yeah. and taking more gambles, more actual gambles with my money. Yeah, I've talked about this already. Like, when you have an environment where over a thousand games come out every year, these people that are buying reprints, I, I just don't, or making reprints, I don't understand it. Why do we need to reprint this game that has already been out there when there's so many new ones? Uh, that's just me. Maybe, you know, there's, that That being said, you know, who who just bought Big City and and you know, X. Uh, I don't. Even okay, let, well, no, well, let's talk about that because I'm genuine. I'm genuinely curious. So the big city reprints what 120 euros or something? Was it in euros or was I, it? I don't want to think. About oh no, it was a, it was a Canadian company, so it wouldn't have been in euros. But we're talking a large quantity of resin. But that being said, it was a reprint that was impossible to get. And I sure I, I've only had one person that I've been able to play it with, and this is now it's finally been reprinted. So, eh. <laughs> so okay, like I sure. said, it's probably a mistake. When once I get it, I'll say, "Yeah, that's just like the game that he's got." And I play it. I'll say, "God, thank God, I paid all this money for it." Now I'll put it up on the shelf with the rest of the, you know, and 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 go. Oh my God, what have I done again? Well, but that raises uh, another point, and that is the issue, which I don't think is a big problem for many people, but it's definitely a problem for us, which is uh, collection duplication. I have had to. I think I'm getting more comfortable now with the idea of letting you have even brilliant games, and just not not having a copy of my own. I have brilliant games? Well, no. Look, uh, let's, take, let's take Food Chain Magnate, for example. I don't have a copy of Food Chain Magnate. You do. We both love Food Chain Magnate. A solid proportion of the time, not all, all the time, but a solid proportion of the time when I would be in a position to play Food Chain Magnate, I can tell you to bring your copy, or I can borrow your copy from you. I don't know how often this occurs to other people, but it's definitely a resource that I think we haven't taken advantage of enough. Like, for example, again, just to emphasize how dumb we both are, we both pledged for Siege of the Citadel. Yes. What well, is wrong with us? Well, I think we've, we've, we've accosted that now. Every time I <laughs> pledge for something, I send yes. Mark a message immediately, even though for whatever reason he doesn't know his own name on Kickstarter, so we can't, you know, there's a way to easily subscribe to a person. So Not you know everything needs to be social media. I don't mm-hmm. understand why everything needs to be social media. I don't, like, follow me on Kickstarter. What does that mean? It means it tells me when you pledge for something. That way I don't pledge for it. <laughs> but anyway, so I think, are we done with just board games? I want to move on sure. to, all right, let's move it. I'm just blinging out your games. I have just one point, and it's the one I already talked about. Do you play that game enough? Like, if you're going to spend all this money to bling it out, it has to be a game that you play a lot. Don't bling out a game that's going to sit on the shelf. Absolutely. The 
So while we've, we've talked a lot about blinging out games, I, d- I do want to issue one mild uh, kind of exception to that. There is a form of blinging out your game that means it will come down from your shelf more often, and that to me is money well spent. You know, The game that's too cumbersome to play, but if it's in- if you get a good insert that properly organizes things, where you think, oh, it'll be so much easier to, to actually play it, that was definitely the case for my insert for Feast for Odin. The barrier, the mental barrier for me of, of suggesting it, of playing it, of taking it down at the shelf was lowered by virtue of that investment. And there's also one other, I actually have this written down, one minor exception, and that is Mind Clash games. Because th- think back of Anachrony. There are two ways to play Anachrony. With the miniatures and as a mistake. Yes. And sometimes I... Now, this, of course, makes me a total hypocrite and contradicts everything that I've said before. <laughs> but, Dan, those giant stompy mechs, you get to slot your workers in there and they're yeah. running around... Oh, jeez. Oh, no, I like how so, we're bringing up points and then always just, you know, doing the exact opposite well, yeah, anyway. Like, it's worth emphasizing all these good bits of quote-unquote wisdom that we're, that we're articulating, all these excellent, very sane and wise money management tips. We're going to ignore five seconds from now exactly. the next time we see that some Kickstarter project has been released. You know, they're going to release some, uh, uh, you know, all-resin $500 version of Tigers and Euphrates and I'm going to buy seven I, copies of it. I just pledged for it. Um... All right, moving away from blinging, it's going to conventions. So the things I have for conventions are, are you already playing enough games where you are? Do you really need to go somewhere else and spend the the money to get there, the hotels to stay there, just to play more games that you were already playing in your home or in your own hometown? Well, so for a lot of people, they go to conventions because they don't have that luxury. That's what and, I, and I respect that. In your case, though... I find it fascinating that instead of not playing games with me in Kingston, you're going to now go to a convention in Toronto so as not to play games with me. This is fascinating. Oh, it just makes it easier to tell you that I can't play with you because I'm in another town. That makes perfect sense. There you go. Well, and I have reasons to do it. Like, say, I have have friends in Toronto that I'm going to play with and I'm helping Mr. McFadden with his table. So there's reasons for me to go there. But other people, like you said, uh, maybe you have friends in this town where where the convention is or there's special events that are only in that convention or they have the must-have limited releases that you can only get there. Those are reasons why you go to a convention. Otherwise, you're just playing games that you can already play at home. That was definitely one of the benefits of going to local tournaments, right? The, the you know, the Shadespire tournaments that, that I've been to. That was just a great way to just spend all day playing a two-player game that I don't tend to get to, uh, get to the table uh, very much. And that was great. I, I'm very happy when these local events happen, and I'm very happy to take advantage of them. I think back on my convention experiences where I've gone to significant bother to go out of my way, thinking about going to Gen Con. I went to a couple of conventions when I lived in New England, and those I mostly thought were a mistake because I, in addition to not liking travel, in addition to uh, not liking new people, whenever I'm spending money, and travel is always very expensive, even in the cheap version, travel is expensive. It just makes me less able to enjoy myself. But that's just a personality flaw of mine. <laughs> so, you know, other people other people the opposite way. You know, they're on vacation. They have it in their head that they're traveling and suddenly everything is more fun. For me, it's exactly the opposite. All right, next thing I have is just gaming tables. Do you really need to buy a dedicated gaming table? Kitchen, <laughs> kitchen table should be fine because, you know, I don't have a dedicated gaming table, so... And, well, neither, and neither does Mark. So well, no, yeah, he, well, look, here's the thing, and we don't want to get into endorsements here, but one of the reasons why, again, one of the reasons why I, I thought that getting a dedicated gaming table was a good idea was, well, number one, it I didn't have a good table to begin with. But setting all that aside, the good dedicated game, gaming tables allow you to keep a game set up and then still use the game as a table. 
And what that lets me do, especially as a solo gamer, is set up a game and know that I don't have to finish it in one sitting. This is also great for your longer con sims and your your your, your longer war games or what have you. Just leave them set up with the put the put the leaves on top and and you can still have dinner over it. And again, anytime I spend money so as to better utilize an already existing game collection, I don't see it as putting good money after bad. I see it as making sure that these objects that you know you like and want to be able to better use are better served. And so if you buy the the, 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 the fancy organizer that costs as much as the base game just because you want to keep all the pieces in the right place, that's one thing. But if you pay, you know, 30, 40 bucks to get an organizer and as a result, you're able to either protect the components or get it down to the, get it on the table more often in an appreciable way, well, then I think that that's, that, that, that's a solid way to do it. And it, it's weird because, and this is, this is kind of where I'm going to end up on, on this and a number of other things. Half the time I think board gaming is a ridiculously expensive hobby, and the other half of the time I think it's actually pretty reasonable. Because at the end of the day, if you maintain a game collection, they're durable goods that you can either trade away and get other get a, a collection to be reasonably self-sustaining if you if you play your cards right. The secondary market has kind of dried up in a lot of ways, so selling games isn't really a viable thing, but at least you have you know, pass it on to your kids. <laughs> so here, here's what I suggest then. Have children so as to better use your gaming collection. There it's like go. buying a game collection or the organizer. All right, the very last point. I have other points, but I'm going to sum it up here. Sure. Time. Well, time. I think <laughs> yeah. time is the biggest currency. Your yeah. own personal time. Sure. Are you getting out of this particular game or this particular hobby, you know, what what you need to? Like, is it? are you justifying the time you're putting in? So make sure you are having fun with these games. Don't force yourself, you know, to have fun. Don't keep pulling down a game thinking it's, you know, this time it'll be fun. Play the games you know are fun. Play them with the people you know you'll have fun with. It's downright inspiring, Walker. There you go. Well, that's going to do it for us this week. Thanks very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at the games you like. From our public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time, and always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. <laughs>